Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. To conclude the mini-series devoted to Shakespeare's first folio, I'll be continuing the story of the creation of the folio, so if you haven't already done so, please do listen to parts one and two before starting this one. It will all make a lot more sense if you do, I promise. Last time, I discussed the production of the first folio up to the printing process and talked a little about the people who produced the folio and those who initiated the project and probably financed it. There are a couple of things that I should probably have stressed more than I did in the last episode, so I'll correct that now before continuing on from where I left off. I talked a bit about how the project of producing the first folio was conceived and how it might have been financed. Thanks to a lack of records, we really have no provable details of that, but I think we should always assume that this was a long-term project, where profit probably was not the main motivation. It may have been so long-term and interrupted thanks to the search for copies of plays, and more than likely the extensive editing required, that Isaac Jaggard and his team were probably only printing it between other works that were more immediately profitable. Perhaps copies of edited plays were waiting for the type blocks and the presses while Jagged satisfied other customer orders. So, definitely a long-term project. There was also one element of the compositor's work that I neglected to mention, and it's a really important one. I did say that they were skilled workers, but a part of that skill that I forgot to mention was not only that the compositor had to place the letters to be printed letter by letter and space by space onto the compositor's stick, but that they had to do it backwards and reversed. Printing produces a mirror image of the letters and spaces, so when composing the type, the compositor had to mentally reverse everything to set the blocks correctly. No doubt, it's a skill that improves with practice, but also surely must have led to some mistakes that are then quite difficult to correct once the type is locked into the galley and its frame. So let's not be too hard on the printers for the mistakes that did creep in. I also didn't mention the paper used for the printing of the folio. For its time, it was quality paper, so much so that it was imported from northern France, as British paper mills were not producing such good quality paper at the time. In terms of cost, the paper was probably as expensive as the typesetting and the printing process put together. Paper wasn't made from wood pulp, as became common in later centuries, but from recycled linen. Rags were collected and, after some sorting, put into stone baths. A calcium carbonate solution was then poured over them to cover the material and then left to mature for several days. With the fibres weakened, the cloth was then rinsed and mashed with hammers into a pulp. Some of this process was an early example of automation. Paper mills required a constant flow of water and so were sited on rivers and used water wheel technology to assist in the process. In this case, the pulping of fibres was at some sites achieved by hammers connected to the water wheel. Once sufficiently pulped, the resulting thick liquid was put into a vat, into which the papermaker pushed a wire mesh mould in a wooden frame. By dragging the mould through the liquid, a layer of fibres was collected. It was another skilled task to get the thickness of each page created about the same, and the fibre mesh not too wet and not too dry. The freshly created page was placed between blankets of woven wool, known as felts, until a large pile was collected. The felts, with the pages of paper between them, were then squeezed in a press to remove any excess water. The pages were then removed and hung out to dry further. Once dry, they were dipped in a gelatine solution, a processing called sizing, 
which improved the quality of the print on the page. The gelatine was made from boiling animals' bones, skin and ligaments, resulting in a thick glue-like liquid. The sizing of the pages was one of the techniques used to improve print quality and to stop the ink seeping into the fibres of the paper too much. The ink itself was quite thick. It was typically made from linseed oil and pine resin. Once that mixture was heated, soot was added to make the intense black colour. With the printing block primed for the press, the ink was applied to the metal with large pads of leather. These were known as ink balls. The application of the ink needed to be thorough to achieve the consistent look, and while one operator was carefully applying that ink, another would dampen a piece of paper, a process that helped the ink adhere to the page, and fix it into the tin pan, a leather frame sitting at one end of the bed of the printing press. The frisket, a thin frame, was put on top of the tin pan to stop any leaking of ink into the margins of the page. The paper, held in the tin pan and the frisket, was then laid onto the inked printing blocks. The bed of the press was then slid across so that half of a page was directly under the wooden block called the platen. A lever was pulled to press the platen onto the paper lying on the printing block, was then released so that the bed could be moved again and the platen pressed into the other half of the page. The bed was put back into its original position and the paper removed from the frames and hung to dry. That completed the process and one side of the paper had been printed on. The second side could only be printed on when the first was dry and the process was repeated until the required numbers of pages were printed. The work rate of an experienced printer was about 250 pages per hour, so a semi-automated process and a lot quicker than hand copying a manuscript, but still quite slow and required the input of many skilled hands. If the first printing showed errors that had to be corrected, then the form had to be unlocked, the offending blocks of type removed and replaced, the form relocked and repositioned on the press. Every stop, quite obviously, slowed the work rate considerably, and errors by the compositors must have been considered a serious matter, especially as the paper was so expensive a commodity that pages with errors could not be simply abandoned, and were still used in the finished copies, unless, that is, the printer was engaged in government papers or a Bible. In these cases, fines could be levied, even licences to print revoked, if errors were allowed in high-status works. Plays, of course, were quite a different matter. Once printed, the pages were collated in order and a proportion of them were sewn together into calf leather covers. Others were sewn but left uncovered so that customers could choose their own cover binding. With these copies, the pages might further be trimmed to match the customer's choice of cover, so it's quite common to find existing copies that are slightly different height or depth from what we might consider the standard edition that was sold already bound. By November 1623, the first print run of 700 or maybe 750 copies was ready for sale. It was on the 8th of the month that the first folio was registered with the stationer's office, with care taken in the record to list the plays that had not been printed before. Edward Bolt's bookshop at the Sign of the Black Bear was near the print shop in the same St Paul's area of the city. Most of his sales would have been to smaller bookshops. He was, in effect, a wholesaler. And, of course, the price of a copy was marked up with each onward transaction. It's estimated that the folio cost the publishers eight or nine shillings and that the end customer would be paying 15 shillings for unbound copies or 20 shillings for bound copies. 
which was something like two months' wages for a skilled worker. It was nine years before a second folio was produced, by which time many of those involved in the first folio had died. But its slow sales didn't mean that it wasn't a success. Given the expensive nature of the work, it was never expected to be a fast-selling book. But there's no doubt that it did succeed in preserving and enhancing the memory of Shakespeare and his work, just as Hemingway Condell had intended. In 1632, printing of the second folio fell to Robert Allot, the printer who'd previously worked with Ben Jonson on his abandoned second folio. Edward Bolt had sold the rights that he owned in the Shakespeare plays to Allot in 1630, and it was he who gathered together owners of the other plays as junior partners in the project. Allot took possession of more than half of the printed copies that were shared out amongst the participating publishers, so there seems no doubt that he was the prime mover in the publication of the second folio. This edition included many updates, about 1700 it's said, but retained many of the iconic features of the first folio. As of today, 235 copies of the first folio are known to have survived, but only 56 copies are complete. The majority of copies, 151, are now in the USA, with only 50 remaining in the UK. Nine are in other European countries, 13 in Japan, one in Africa, one in Australia and one in New Zealand, which is the copy that has travelled the furthest as the crow flies. This copy has many margin notes from previous owners, the first being from April 1676, when Charles Grills, then Sheriff of Cornwall, signed and dated the copy. As a high-ranking government official, he is a good example of the type of gentleman reader that the collection appealed to. And like many in his time, he read with pen in hand. The copy that has travelled the least distance as things stand is that one held at the Guildhall in the City of London, just half a mile from Jaggard's print shop. It's believed that the City Corporation copy was purchased at about 1670 by William Petty Fitzmaurice after which it was bought by the London Institution at the sale of his library in 1806. The copy was then transferred to the Guildhall Library in 1913 following the closure of the London Institute the previous year. This copy isn't on regular display, but it is bought out for special occasions. Nine copies that have been previously documented are now thought of as missing. The catalogue of existing first folio copies started in 1902, when Sidney Lee set about the task. His resulting work, Shakespeare's First Folio, a descriptive work, located and documented 152 copies, and his scholarship was rewarded with a knighthood. By the end of the century, 80 more copies had been located and verified, and then in 2012, an updated version of the catalogue reported 232 copies. Currently, the survey is updated every six years, always with the hope of new additions and the expectation that known copies are being well looked after. However, as much as this shows that previously unidentified copies can and do still turn up, it also reveals that previously reported copies have gone missing. Occasionally, there has been theft of copies held in public institutions, but also copies held privately have disappeared. Even the illustrious British Museum has been known to lose a copy. In 1900, a British lord sent his copy to the museum for safekeeping and they confirmed its arrival to him. But years later, the copy could not be found in the collection. 
Several previously unknown copies were notified to the collectors of the survey after its first and second iterations. Novelist Thomas Hardy wrote to Sidney Lee saying that his neighbour in Dorset owned a copy and it was not in the listing and it needed to be inspected. Even in more recent years, copies still turn up. In 2014, a librarian at the Jesuit College in Saint-Omar, France, identified a copy that had, because it was missing the front covers, been miscatalogued as a later reprint edition. Rather more dramatically, six years earlier, Raymond Scott turned up at the Folger Library in Washington with a first folio that he said had come from the family of his Cuban fiancée. This, like many of Scott's claims, was not true. Actually, the fiancé was true, and since his return to the UK from Cuba, Scott had been sending her large amounts of money, a choice that had left him in serious debt. The first folio copy had, in fact, been stolen from Durham University a decade earlier, although probably not by Scott himself. The copy was in poor condition, with front and back covers missing, but thanks to the detail of each copy held in the first folio catalogue, it was possible for experts at the Folger Library to identify that yes, it was a first folio, and that it was a copy known as West Seven that had been held at Durham University. The police became involved and soon unpicked Scott's story. While he stayed in Washington, he behaved like a wealthy eccentric with an interest in old books, but he was soon discovered to be an unemployed Englishman who lived with his elderly mother, not ten miles from Durham. Scott was put on trial in 2010 and arrived at court in a horse-drawn carriage reciting lines from Richard III. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, but committed suicide two years later while still incarcerated. It's just one rather extreme example of the passions and greed that the first folio, thanks to its exalted status, can arouse. The Durham copy had been valued at £3 million, but that was halved thanks to the damage it sustained during its travels. Apart from its decade-long absence, the copy was technically in the same library since it was first published new by John Cosin, the master of Cambridge University, who was then later appointed Bishop of Durham in 1660. His library eventually passed to the university collection. Other valuable works stolen at the same time have never been recovered. And we can't think of leaving the subject of the first folio without a word on Henry Folger and his obsession with not only the first folio, but all things Shakespeare. Henry Clay Folger was born in New York City on June 18, 1857. His father was a wholesale millinery dealer and the family could trace their ancestry back to the early settlers and were distant relations of Benjamin Franklin. The oldest of eight children, he showed early promise, enough to gain him some private scholarship that saw him through a good education, ending with graduation from Amherst College. Further study while he was working for an oil company gained him a law degree and then a master's degree in 1881. He worked in oil for the rest of his commercial career, retiring from his position as chairman of the Standard Oil Company in 1928, with the express intention of setting up his Shakespeare library. However, he died in 1930 after an operation and only saw the planning process and some of the early construction works. In 1885, he had married Emily Jordan, who became a vital supporting partner in his lifetime project of collecting Shakespeare materials. She had also received a good education and was working at a private school when they met, and later obtained a master's degree thanks to a thesis that summarised the views of leading Shakespearean scholars. Her assistants 
was not only of an academic nature. With Folger's death and the stock market crash of 1929, the funds he left for the project soon proved inadequate. So Emily donated over $3 million of her own Standard Oil securities to maintain the project. She remained involved in the library until her death in 1936. The start of the collection was in 1889, when Folger purchased a copy of the fourth folio edition of The Complete Shakespeare, which was originally published in 1665. He paid $107 for it. His love of literature came early, and his specific interest in Shakespeare, an interest that soon became an obsession, was said to be sparked by hearing a lecture by Ralph Waldo Emerson while he was still at school. Four years after buying the fourth folio, he purchased a first folio copy. That was to be the first of many. While the business of collecting the first folio was far from its height, those who were looking for copies favoured perfect or near as possibly perfect copies. Folger preferred imperfect versions, finding much of interest in the margin notes and other scribblings that he found in the copies left by previous owners. And he didn't just focus on Shakespeare's folios, but collected much 16th and 17th century Shakespeare-related material. He was meticulous in researching potential purchases, and often refused to buy before he had personally inspected the goods. Once in his collection, he itemised everything in a detailed catalogue. Notably, he had a great self-confidence in his and in Emily's opinion on work they purchased, and he studiously avoided consulting with other experts. The Folgers were aware that their interest in items would soon become noticed and drive prices up, so they used professional booksellers to bid on their behalf at auctions. The collection grew relentlessly and soon outgrew their Manhattan home, so, with the exception of some very valuable items that were held in bank vaults, they took to storing items in fireproof warehouses on the island while maintaining a card index of items and their location at home. Items were stored in wooden airtight cases that were originally designed for the safekeeping of five-gallon oil cans. Thanks to his high position at Standard Oil for 50 years, Folger used his salary and investments and preferential loans that he was able to negotiate to feed his purchasing habit. He soon built up a network of contacts who provided a more or less constant stream of items for him to review. And he was a man who liked to pay in cash, a preference that only further endeared him to the dealers. He also endowed his alma mater Amherst College with a literature prize and many donations of duplicate copies from his collections for their library. He had the idea of eventually creating a dedicated library from early in his collecting life, but it was not until after the end of the First World War that the Folgers seriously started looking for a suitable location. After an extensive search in which they seriously considered sites in New York, Boston, Chicago and Stratford-upon-Avon, no less, they settled on a site in Washington, which involved the purchase of 14 houses that were demolished to clear a city block a process that was carried out in terms of secrecy and took the best part of a decade. To seal the project, Congress passed a resolution allowing the use of the land. Folger was, as you would expect, closely involved with the design of the library, which has a classical exterior and Tudor-inspired interior. It was at his suggestion that an Elizabethan-style theatre was included in the designs, although his intention was for it to be used as a lecture hall and not as a regular theatre. The cornerstone was laid in 1930, shortly before he died. The library opened on the 23rd of April, of course, 1932, 
and, at the time, held over 200,000 items. Further items and libraries from collectors were purchased through the first half of the 20th century, further increasing the scope and volume of the library, so that it became a significant repository not only of Shakespeare, but of early European art and literature in general. In the later 20th century, that scope was increased further by purchases focused on the European Renaissance. It is undoubtedly a very varied collection, including printed books, manuscripts, prints, drawings, photographs, paintings and other works of art, and a wealth of performance history, from playbills to films, recordings and stage costumes. In addition to the rare material collection, the Folger holds a collection of over 100,000 monographs, periodicals and electronic resources published between the 1830s and the present relating to the understanding and the interpretation of Shakespeare, his works and their impact, and on the early modern world in general. But it is the 82 copies of the first folio that the library holds that it's best known for. Each has its own story to tell, but of particular note is the Vincent copy, first owned by Augustine Vincent, who was a friend of printer William Jaggard. As William had died before the publication of the folio, it must have been given to Augustine by Isaac on his late father's behalf. Augustine recorded in Latin in the inner leaf that it was a gift from Jagged, given to him in 1623, the year of publication. The copy had been then owned by the Sipthorpe family since the late 1700s, and about a century later it was discovered by a London book dealer while cataloguing their collection. The legend goes that an assistant handed down the dusty copy off the high shelf of an outhouse, commenting that, this one's no good, it's only old poetry. Folger disagreed after he acquired it, saying in a 1907 article that, thanks to the direct connection to Jagged, he regarded it as, I quote, the most precious book in the world. So Folger was not afraid of a bit of hyperbole, and although there is much to be grateful to him for, there is also a downside to his obsessive collecting. The desire to own a first folio, its fetishization as an object to possess, had begun before his time, as early as the mid to late 1700s, but his obsession and success as a collector accelerated that trend and drove the price of a copy up and up in his own lifetime and beyond that until today. Can any work be worth the more than $10 million that a first folio copy might cost you today? Whatever we feel about that, surely the important thing is that the first folio preserved plays that otherwise would have been lost. Imagine, if you can, Shakespeare without Macbeth, as you like it, Antony and Cleopatra, A Comedy of Errors, The Taming of the Shrew and 13 others, which could all well have been completely lost without the first folio. Shakespeare may well still have been seen as the greatest playwright of his age without those plays, but maybe not as great, and maybe not the greatest of all time. But thanks to the first folio, thanks to Hemmage and Condell, and the others involved, 400 years on, we can still enjoy his work, not just in printed form, but more importantly, I would say, being performed in the theatre too. I look forward to your company again soon, but in the meantime, please do join the Facebook page or group or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. 
If you would like to help support the podcast, the easiest thing would be to pass on the word to anyone you think might be interested in a bit of theatre history, or if you have a moment, write a review and rate the podcast in your podcast app of choice. You can find details of other ways to support the podcast at the website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. And there is additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. You can also find details of this on the website, and there's a link in the show notes. In the meantime, if you have any comments or concerns, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 